Welcome to this Ubula Audio presentation of The Skylark of Space by E.E. E. Doc Smith. Volume 6, Chapter 15 They descended rapidly over a large city set in the middle of a vast, level, beautifully planted plain. As they watched, the city vanished and became a mountain summit with valleys falling away on all sides as far as the eye could reach. Huh, never saw a mirage like that before, Seaton exclaimed. But we'll land anyway. The ship landed gently upon the summit, its occupants more than half expecting the mountain to disappear beneath them. Nothing happened, however, and the five clustered in the lock, wondering whether or not to disembark. They could see no sign of life, but each felt the presence of a vast, invisible something. Suddenly a man materialized in the air before them. A man identical with Seaton in every detail, down to the smudge of grease under one eye and the exact design of his Hawaiian sports shirt. Hello, folks, he said in Seaton's tone and style. Surprised I know your language? Huh? You would be. Don't even understand telepathy or the ether or the relationship between time and space. Huh? Not even the fourth dimension. Changing instantaneously from Seaton's form to Dorothy's, the stranger went on without a break. Electrons and neutrons and things. Nothing here either. Then the form became Duquesne's. Ah, a freer type, but blind, dull, stupid, another nothing. As Melton Crane the same, as Peggy the same, as was of course to be expected, since you are all nothings in essence of a race so low in the scale it will be millions of years before it will rise even above death, and death's clumsy attendant necessity, sex. It is of course necessary for me to make of you nothings in fact, to dematerialize you. In Seton's form again, the being stared at Seton, who felt his senses reel under the impact of an awful, if insubstantial, blow. Seaton fought back with all his mind and remained standing. What's this? The stranger exclaimed in surprise. This is the first time in millions of cycles that mere matter, which is only a manifestation of mind, has refused to obey a mind of power. There's something screwy somewhere. He switched to crane shape. Ah, I am not a perfect reproduction. There is some subtle difference. The external form is the same. The internal structure likewise. The molecules of substance are arranged properly, as are the atoms in the molecules. The electrons, neutrons, protons, positrons, neutrinos, mesons. Nothing amiss on that level. On the third level... Let's go, Seaton exclaimed, drawing Dorothy backward and reaching for the airlock switch. This dematerialization stuff may be pie for him, but believe me, it's none of my dish. No, no, the stranger remonstrated. You really must stay and be dematerialized, alive or dead. He drew his pistol. Being in Crane's form, he drew it slowly as Crane did, and Seaton's Mark I shell struck him before the pistol cleared his pocket. The pseudo-body was volatilized, but just to be sure, Crane fired a Mark V into the ground through the last open chink of the closing lock. Seaton leapt to the board. As he did so, a creature materialized in the air in front of him and crashed to the floor as he threw on the power. It was a frightful thing. 
It had outrageous teeth, long claws, and an automatic pistol held in a human hand. Forced flat by the acceleration, it was unable to lift either itself or the weapon. We have one trick, Seaton blazed. Stick to matter and I'll run along with you till my ankles catch fire. That is a childish defiance. It speaks well for your courage, but not your intelligence, the animal said and vanished. A moment later, Seaton's hair stood on end as a pistol appeared upon his board. Clamped to it by bands of steel, the slide jerked, the trigger moved, the hammer came down. However, there was no explosion, merely a click. Seaton, paralyzed by the rapid succession of stunning events, was surprised to find himself still alive. Oh, I was almost sure it wouldn't explode, the gun barrel said chattily in a harsh metallic voice. You see, I haven't derived the formula of your subnuclear structure yet. Hence, I could not make an actual explosive. By the use of crude force, I could kill you in any one of a number of different ways. Great, name one, Seaton snapped. Two, if you like. I could materialize as five masses of metal directly over your heads and fall. I could, by a sufficient concentration of effort, materialize a sun in your immediate path. Either method would succeed, would it not? Um, yeah, I guess it would, Seaton admitted grudgingly. But such crude work is distasteful in the extreme, and is never, under any circumstances, mandatory. Furthermore, you are not quite the complete nothings that my first rough estimate seemed to indicate. In particular, the Duquesne of you has the rudiments of a quality which, while it cannot be called mental ability, may in time develop into a quality which may just possibly make him assimilable into the purely intellectual stratum. Furthermore, you have given me a notable and entirely unexpected amount of exercise and enjoyment, and can be made to give me more, much more as follows. I will spend the next sixty of your minutes at work upon that formula, your subnuclear structure. Its derivation is comparatively simple, requiring only the solution of ninety-seven simultaneous differential equations and an integration of ninety-seven dimensions. If you can interfere with my computation sufficiently to prevent me from deriving that formula within the stipulated period of time, you may return to your fellow nothings exactly as you are now. The first minute begins when the sweep hand of your chronometer touches zero. That is now. Seaton cut the power to one gravity and sat up, eyes closed tight, frowning in the intensity of his mental effort. You can't do it, you immaterial lug, he thought savagely. There are too many variables. No mind, however inhuman, can handle more than 91 differentials at once. And you're wrong. That's theta, not epsilon. It's X, not Y or Z. Alpha, beta, ha, there's a slip, a bad one. Gotta go back and start over. Nobody can integrate 96 brackets. No body and no thing or mind in this whole entire cockeyed universe. Seaton cast aside any thought of the horror of their position. He denied any feeling of suspense. He refused to consider the fact that both he and his beloved Dorothy might at any instant be hurled into nothingness. Closing his mind deliberately to everything else, he fought that weirdly inimical presence with everything he had. 
with all his single-mindedness of purpose, with all his power of concentration, with all the amassed and directed strength of his keen, highly trained brain, the hour passed. You win, the gun barrel said. More particularly, I should say that the Duquesne of you won. To my surprise and delight, that one developed his nascent quality very markedly during this short hour. Keep on going as you have been going, my potential kinsman. Keep on studying under those Eastern masters as you have been studying. And it is within the realm of possibility that even in your short lifetime, you may become capable of withstanding the stresses concomitant with induction into our ranks. The pistol vanished. So did the planet behind them. The enveloping, pervading field of mental force disappeared. All five knew surely, without any trace of doubt, that that entity, whatever it had been, had gone. Did all that really happen, Dick? Dorothy asked tremulously. Or have I been having the great-great-grandfather of all nightmares? It happened. That is, I guess it happened. Or maybe... Mart, if you could code that and shove it into a mechanical brain, what answer do you think would come out? I don't know. I simply do not know. Crane's mind, the mind of a highly trained engineer, rebelled. No part of this whole fantastic episode could be explained by anything he knew. None of it could possibly have happened. Nonetheless, either it happened or we were hypnotized. If so, who was the hypnotist and where? Above all, why? It must have happened, Dick. I'll buy that, wild as it sounds. Duquesne, what about you? It happened. I don't know how or why it did, but I believe it did. I've quit denying the impossibility of anything. If I had believed that your steam bath flew out of the window by itself that day, none of us would be out here now. If it happened... You were apparently the prime operator in saving our bacon. Who in the blazes are these eastern masters you've been studying under? And what did you study? I do not know. He lit a cigarette and took two deep inhalations. I wish I did. I have studied several esoteric philosophies. Perhaps I can find out which one it was. I will certainly try. For that gentleman would be my idea of heaven. He left the room. It took some time for the four to recover from the shock of that encounter. In fact, they had not yet fully recovered from it when Crane found a close cluster of stars, each emitting a peculiar greenish light, which in the spectroscope blazed with copper lines. When they had approached so close that the suns were widely spaced in the heavens, Crane asked Seaton to take his place on the board while he and Margaret tried to locate a planet. They went down to the observatory, but found they were still too far away, and began taking notes. Crane's mind was not upon his work, however, but was filled with thoughts of the girl at his side. The intervals between comments became longer and longer until the two were standing in silence. The Skylark lurched a little, as she had done hundreds of times before. As usual, Crane put out a steadying arm. This time, however, in that highly charged atmosphere, the gesture took on a new significance. Both blushed hotly, and as their eyes met, each saw what they had both wanted most to see. Slowly, as though without volition, 
Crane put his other arm around her. A wave of deeper crimson flooded her face, but her lips lifted to his, and her arms went up around his neck. Margaret. Peggy. I had intended to wait, but why should we wait? You know how much I love you, my dearest. I think I do. I know I do. Oh, my Martin. Presently they made their way back to the engine room, hoping that their singing joy was inaudible, their new status invisible. They might have kept their secret for a time had not Seaton promptly asked, What did you find, Mart? The always self-possessed crane looked panicky. Margaret's fair face glowed a deeper and deeper pink. Yes, what did you find? Dorothy demanded with a sudden, vivid smile of understanding. My future wife, Crane answered steadily. The two girls hugged each other, and the two men gripped hands, each of the four knowing that in these two unions there was nothing whatever of passing fancy. A planet was located, and the Skylark flew toward it. It's pretty deep in, Mart. Duquesne and I haven't got enough dope yet to plot this mess of suns, so we don't know exactly where any of them really are. But that planet's somewhere in the middle. Would that make any difference? No, there are many closer ones, but they are too big or too small or lack water or atmosphere or have some other drawback. Go ahead. When they neared atmosphere and cut the drive, there were 17 great suns scattered in all directions in the sky. Air pressure at the surface, 30 pounds per square inch, composition approximately normal except for three-tenths of one percent of a fragrant non-poisonous gas that I'm not familiar with, temperature 100 degrees Fahrenheit, surface gravity four-tenths Earth. Seaton let the vessel slowly settle toward the ocean beneath them. The water was an intensely deep blue. He took a sample ran it through the machine, and yelled, Hot dog! It's ammoniacal copper sulfate! Let's go! Seaton laid a course toward the nearest continent. Chapter 16 As the Skylark approached the shore, its occupants heard a rapid succession of detonations, apparently coming from the direction in which they were traveling. I wonder what that racket is, Seaton said. Sounds like big guns and high explosives, but not atomic, though. Chick, Duquesne said, even allowing for the density of this air, that kind of noise is not made by pop guns. Seaton closed the lock to keep out the noise and advanced the speed lever until the vessel tilted sharply under the pull of the engine. Go easy, Seaton, Duquesne cautioned. We don't want to stop one of their shells. They may not be like ours. Easy it is. I'll stay high. As the Skylark closed up, the sound grew heavier and clearer. There was one practically continuous explosion now. There they are, said Seaton, who from his board could scan the whole field of vision. From port six, five o'clock, low. While the other four occupants were making their way to the indicated viewport, Seaton went on. Aerial battleships. There's eight of them. Four are about the shape of ours. No wings. 
act like copters, but I've never seen anything like the other four. Neither had Crane or Duquesne. They must be animals, Crane decided finally. I don't believe that any engineer anywhere would design machines like that. Four of the contestants were animals. Here indeed was a new kind of animal, though. An animal able and eager to engage a first-class battleship. Each had an enormous torpedo-shaped body with scores of long tentacles and a dozen or so immense wings. Each had a row of eyes along each side and a sharp, prow-like beak. Each was covered with scale-like plates of transparent armor. Wings and tentacles were made of the same substance. That it was real and highly effective armor there was no doubt, for each battleship bristled with guns, and each gun was putting out an almost continuous stream of fire. Shells bursting against the creatures filled the region with flame and haze and produced an uninterrupted roll of sound appalling in its intensity. In spite of that desperate concentration of fire, however, the animals went straight in. Beaks tore yard-long openings and hulls. Flailing wings smashed superstructures flat. Writhing, searching tentacles wrenched guns from their mounts and seized personnel. Out of action, one battleship was held while tentacles sought out and snatched its crew. Then it was dropped to crash some 20,000 feet below. One animal was blown apart. Two more battleships and two more animals went down. The remaining battleship was half-wrecked. The animal was as good as new, though. Thus, the final duel did not last long. The monster darted away after something, which the observers in the Skylock saw for the first time. A fleet of small airships in full flight, away from the scene of the battle. Fast as they were, the animal was covering three miles to their one. We can't stand for anything like this, Seaton cried as he threw on power and the Skylark leapt forward. When I yank him away, Mart, sock him with a Mark 10. The monster seized the largest, most gaily decorated plane, just as the Skylark came within sighting distance. In four almost simultaneous motions, Seaton focused the attractor on the huge beak of the thing, shoved on its power, pointed the engine straight up, and gave it five notches. There was a crash of rending metal as the monster was torn loose from its prey. Seaton hauled it straight up for a hundred miles while it struggled so savagely in that invisible, incomprehensible grip that the thousands of tons of mass of the Skylark tossed and pitched like a rowboat in a storm at sea. Crane fired. There was a blare of sound that paralyzed their senses, even inside the vessel, and in the thin air of that enormous elevation. There was a furiously boiling, furiously expanding ball of... of something. The detonation of a Mark X load cannot be described. It has to be seen. And even then, it cannot be understood. And it can scarcely be believed. No bit large enough to be seen remained of that mass of almost indestructible armor. Seaton reversed the bar and drove straight down, catching the crippled flagship at about 5,000 feet. He focused the attractor and lowered the plane gently to the ground. The other airships, which had been clustering around their leader in near-suicidal attempts at rescue, landed nearby. As the Skylark landed beside the wrecked plane, the Earthmen saw it was surrounded by a crowd of people. Men and women, 
identical in form and feature with themselves. They were a superbly molded race, the men almost as big as Seton and Duquesne, the women noticeably taller than the two earth women. The men wore collars of metal, numerous metallic ornaments, and heavily jeweled belts and shoulder straps, which were hung with weapons. The women were not armed, but were even more highly decorated than the men. They fairly scintillated with jewels. The natives wore no clothing, and their smooth skins shone a dark, livid, utterly strange color in the yellowish-bluish-green glare of light. Their skins were green, undoubtedly. The whites of their eyes were a light yellowish-green. The heavy hair of the women and the close-cropped locks of the men were a very dark green, almost black, as were also their eyes. What a color, Seaton said wonderingly. They're human, I guess, except for that color. But great cats, look at that color. How much of that is pigment and how much is due to this light is a question. If we were outside, away from our daylight lamps, we might look like that too. Oh, dear Lord, I hope not, Dorothy exclaimed. If I'm going to, I won't take a step out of this ship. So there. Sure you will, Seaton said. You'll look like a choice piece of modern art, and your hair will be jet black. Come on, give the natives a treat. Oh, my Lord, then what color will mine be? Margaret asked. I'm not sure. Probably a very dark and very beautiful green, he grinned gleefully. My hunch is that this is going to be some visit. Wait till I get a couple of props. Shall we go? Come on, Dot. Roger, I'll try anything once. Margaret? Onward, men of Earth. Seaton opened the lock, and the five stood in the chamber, looking at the throng outside. Seaton raised both arms above his head, and what he hoped was a universal sign of peaceful intent. In response, a man of Herculean build so splendidly decorated that his harness was one gleaming mass of jewels, waved one arm and shouted a command. The crowd promptly fell back, leaving a clear space of a hundred yards. The man unbuckled his harness, let everything drop, and advanced naked toward the Skylark, both arms aloft in Seton's own gesture. Seton started down. No, Dick. Talk to him from here, Crane advised. No, Seaton said. Whatever he can do, I can. Except undress in mixed company. He won't know that I've got a gun in my pocket, and it won't take me more than half a second to pull it out if I have to. Go on, then. Ducade and I will come along. Double nixed to that. He's alone, so I've got to be. Some of his boys are covering the field, though, so you might draw your gats and hold them so they show. Seaton stepped down and went to meet the stranger. When they had approached to within a few feet of each other, the stranger stopped, stood erect, flexed his left arm smartly so that his fingertips touched his left ear, and smiled broadly, exposing clean, shining green teeth. He spoke, but it was a meaningless jumble of sound. The voice coming from so big a man seemed light and thin. Seaton smiled in return and saluted as the other had done. Hail and greetings, O high Pangendrum, Seaton said cordially, his deep voice barely booming out in the dense, heavy air. I get the drift, and I'm glad you're peaceful. Wish I could tell you that. The native tapped himself on the chest. Nalboon, 
he said distinctly and impressively. Now, Boone, Seaton repeated, then said in the other's tone and manner while pointing to himself, Seaton. Seaton, Nell Boone said and smiled again, again indicating himself. He said, Domak Gok Modonal. That was evidently a title, so Seaton had to give himself one. Boss of the road, he said, drawing himself up with pride. Thus properly introduced to his visitor, Nell Boone pointed to the crippled plane, inclined his royal head slightly in thanks, or acknowledgment of the service rendered. Seaton couldn't tell which. He shouted an order in which Seaton could distinguish something that sounded like, Seaton, Baz, Uvi, Rogged! Instantly, every right arm in the crowd was aloft, that of each man bearing a weapon while the left arms snapped into that peculiar salute. A mighty cry arose as all repeated the name and title of the distinguished visitor. Seaton turned. Bring out one of those big four-color signal rockets, Mart. We've got to acknowledge a reception like this. The party appeared, Duquesne carrying the rocket with an exaggerated deference. Seaton shrugged one shoulder, and a cigarette case appeared in his hand. Now Boone started and in spite of his self-control, glanced at it in surprise. The case flew open, and Seaton, after taking a cigarette, pointed to another. Smoke? he asked affably. Nalboon took one, but had no idea whatever of what to do with it. This astonishment at simple sleight of hand and ignorance of tobacco emboldened Seaton. Reaching into his mouth, he pulled out a flaming match, at which Nalboon jumped straight backwards at least a foot, then, while now Boone and his people watched in straining attention, Seaton lit the weed, half consumed it in two long drags, swallowed the half, regurgitated it still alight, took another puff, and swallowed the butt. I'm good, I admit it, but not that good, Seaton said to Crane. I never laid him in the aisles like that before. This rocket'll tie him up like pretzels. Keep clear, everybody. He bowed deeply to Nell Boone pulling a lighted match from his ear as he did so, and he lit the fuse. There was a roar, a shower of sparks, a blaze of colored fire as the rocket flew upward. But to Seaton's surprise, Dalboon took it quite as a matter of course, merely saluting gravely in acknowledgment of the courtesy. Seaton motioned his party to come up and turn to Crane. Better not, Dick. Let him keep on thinking that one boss is all there is. Not by a long shot. There's only one of him. Two bosses should be twice as good. He introduced Crane with great ceremony as Boss of the Skylark, whereupon the grand salute of the people was repeated. Now Boone gave an order, and a squad of soldiers brought up a group of people, apparently prisoners. Seven men and seven women. They were much lighter in color than the natives. They were naked except for jeweled collars worn by all, and a thick metal belt worn by one of the men. They all walked proudly, scorned for their captors in every step. Now Boone barked an order. Thirteen of the prisoners stared back at him, motionlessly defiant. The man wearing the belt, who had been studying Seaton closely, said something, whereupon they all prostrated themselves. Now Boone waved his hand, giving the group to Seaton and Crane. They accepted the gift with due thanks, and the slaves placed themselves behind their new masters. Seaton and Crane then tried to make Nelboon understand that they wanted copper, but they failed dismally.
Finally, Seaton led the native into the ship and showed him the remnant of the power bar, indicating its original size and giving information as to the number desired by counting to sixteen upon his fingers. Nalboon understood this, and going outside, pointed upward toward the largest of the eleven suns visible, and swung his arm four times in a rising setting arc. He then invited his visitors to get into his plane, but Seaton refused. They would follow, he explained, in their own vessel. As I entered the Skylark, the slaves followed. We don't want them aboard, Dick, Dorothy protested. There are too many of them. Not that I'm scared exactly, but... We've got to, Seaton decided. We're stuck with them. Besides, when in Rome, you've got to be a Roman candle, you know? Now Boone's newly invested flagship led the way. The Skylark followed a few hundred yards behind and above. I don't get these folks at all, Seaton said thoughtfully. They've got next century's machines, but never heard of sleight of hand. Class 9 rockets are old stuff, but matches scare them? That's just weird. It's surprising enough that their physical shape is the same as Oz, Crane said. It would be altogether too much to expect that all the details of development would be parallel. The fleet approached a large city, and the visitors from Earth studied with interest this metropolis of an unknown world. The buildings were all the same height, flat-topped and arranged in random squares, rectangles, and triangles. There were no streets. The space between the buildings were park-like areas. All the traffic was in the air. Flying vehicles darted in all directions. But the confusion was only apparent, not real. Each class and each direction had its own level. The fleet descended toward an immense building, just outside the city proper, and they all landed upon its roof, except the flagship, which led the Skylark to a landing dock nearby. As they disembarked, Seaton said, Don't be surprised at anything I pull off. I'm a walking storehouse of all kinds of small junk. Now Boone led the way into an elevator, which dropped to the ground floor. Gates opened, and through ranks of prostrate people, the party went out into the palace grounds of the Emperor, of the great nation of Mardanal. It was a scene of unearthly splendor. Every shade of their peculiar spectrum was there, in solid, liquid, and gas. Trees were of all colors, as were grasses and flowers along the walks. Fountains played streams of various and constantly changing hues. The air was tinted and perfumed, swirling through metal arches and billows of ever-varying colors and scents, Colors and combinations of colors impossible to describe were on every hand, fantastically beautiful in that strong, steady, peculiar light. Isn't this gorgeous, Dick? Dorothy whispered. But I wish I had a mirror. You look simply awful. What kind of a scarecrow do I look like? Your hair isn't as black as I thought it would be. There's some funny green in it. And your lips, though, well, they're black. And your teeth are green. And... Stop it! Green teeth and black lips! That's enough. I don't want a mirror. Now Boone led the way into the palace proper and into a dining hall where a table was ready. This room had many windows, each of which was festooned with sparkling, scintillating gems. The walls were hung with a cloth resembling spun glass or nylon, which fell to the floor in shimmering waves of color. There was no woodwork whatsoever. Doors, panels, tables, and chairs were made of metal. A closer inspection of one of the tapestries 
showed that it too was of metal, its threads numbering thousands to the inch, of vivid but harmonious colors of a strange and intricate design. It seemed to writhe as its colors changed with every variation in the color of light. Oh my, isn't that stuff just perfectly gorgeous? Dorothy breathed. I'd give anything for a dress made out of that. Order noted, Seaton said. I'll pick up ten yards of it when we get the copper. We had better watch the food pretty closely, Seaton, Duquesne warned as Nalboon waved them to a table. Yeah, you got it. Copper, arsenic, and so forth. Very little here we can eat much of, I'd say. Well, the girls and I will wait for you two chemists to approve each dish then. The guests sat down, the light-skinned slaves standing behind them, and the servants brought in heaping trays of food. There were joints and cuts of various kinds of meat, birds and fish, raw and cooked in various ways, green, pink, brown, purple, black, and near-white vegetables and fruits. Slaves handed the diners peculiar instruments, knives with razor edges, needle-pointed stilettos, and wide, flexible spatulas, which evidently were to serve as both forks and spoons. I can't eat with these things, Dorothy exclaimed. Well, that's where my lumberjack training comes in handy, Seaton grinned. I can eat with a spatula four times as fast as you could eat with a fork, but we'll fix that. Reaching out apparently into the girl's hair, he brought out forks and spoons, much to the surprise of the natives. Duquesne and Seaton waved away most of the proffered foods without discussion. Then, tasting cautiously and discussing fully, they approved a few of the others. The approval, however, was very strictly limited. These probably won't poison us too much, Duquesne said, pointing out the selected few. That is, if we don't eat much now, and don't eat any of it again too soon. I don't lack any of this one bit, Seaton. You and me both, Seaton agreed. I don't think there'll be any next time. Nalboon took a bowl full of blue crystals, sprinkled his food liberally with the substance, and passed the bowl to Seaton. Copper sulfate. Good thing they put it out on the table instead of the kitchen, or we couldn't eat a bite of anything. Seaton, returning the bowl, reached behind him and came up with a pair of salt and pepper shakers, which, after seasoning his own food with them, he passed to his host. Nalboon tasted the pepper cautiously, then smiled in delight and half-emptied the shaker onto his palm. He then sprinkled a few grains of salt onto his palm and studied them closely with growing amazement. After a few rapid sentences, poured them into a dish held by an officer who had sprung to his side. The officer also studied the few small crystals, then carefully washed Nalboon's hand. Nalboon turned to Seaton, plainly asking for the salt cellar. Sure, old man. And in the same mysterious way, he produced another set, which he handed to Crane. The meal progressed merrily with much sign language conversation between the two parties, a little of which was understood. It was evident that Nalboon, usually stern and reticent, was in an unusually pleasant and jovial mood. After the meal, Nalboon bade them a courteous farewell, and they were escorted to a suite of five connecting rooms by the royal usher and a company of soldiers who mounted guard outside the suite. Gathered in one room, they discussed sleeping arrangements. The girls insisted they would sleep together, and the men should occupy the rooms on either side. As the girls turned away, the four slaves swallowed. 
I don't want these people, and I can't make them go away. Dorothy protested again. Can't you do something about this, Dick? I don't think so. I think we're stuck with them as long as we're here. Don't you think so, Mart? Yes, and from what I have seen of this culture, I infer that they will be executed if we discard them. Well, maybe. We're going to keep them, Dot, for the moment at least. Of course, in that case. You keep the men, we'll take the women. Huh. He turned to Crane, saying something under his breath. They don't want us sleeping in the same room with all these gorgeous gals, huh? I wonder why. Seaton waved all the women into the girls' room, but they hung back. One of them ran up to the man wearing the belt and spoke rapidly as she threw her arms around his head in a perfectly human gesture. He shook his head, pointing toward Seaton several times as he reassured her. He then led her tenderly into the girls' room, and the other women followed. Crane and Duquesne, having gone to their rooms with their attendants, the man with the belt started to help Seaton to take off his clothes. Stripped, Seaton stretched vigorously, the muscles writhing and rippling under the skin of mighty arms and broad shoulders as he twisted about, working off the stiffness of the comparative confinement. The slaves stared in amazement at the display of musculature and talked rapidly among themselves as they gathered up Seaton's discarded clothing. Their chief picked up a salt shaker, a silver fork, and a few other items that had fallen from the garments, apparently asking permission to do something with them. Seaton nodded and turned to his bed. He heard a slight clank of arms in the hall and began to wonder. Going to the window, he saw that there were guards outside as well. Were they honored guests or were they prisoners? Three of the slaves, at a word from their leader, threw themselves onto the floor and slept but he himself did not rest. Opening the apparently solid metal belt, he took out a great number of small tools, many tiny instruments, and several spools of insulated wire. He then took the articles that Seton had given him, taking extreme pains not to spill a single crystal of salt, and he set to work. As he worked hour after hour, a strange, exceedingly complex device took form under his flying fingers. Chapter 17 Seaton did not sleep well. It was too hot. He was glad after eight hours to get up. No sooner had he started to shave, however, than one of the slaves touched his arm, motioning him into a reclining chair and showing him a keen blade, long and slightly curved. Seaton lay down, and the slave shaved him with a rapidity and smoothness he had never experienced before. So wonderfully sharp was the peculiar razor. Then the barber began to shave his superior with no preliminary treatment, save rubbing his face with a perfume oil. Hold on a minute, said Seaton. Here's something that helps a lot. Soap. He lathered the face with his brush and the man with the belt looked up in surprised pleasure as his stiff beard was swept away with no pulling at all. Seaton called to the others, and soon the party was assembled in his room. All were dressed very lightly because of the unrelieved and unvarying heat, which was constant at 100 degrees. A gong sounded, and one of the slaves opened the door, ushering in servants bearing a table, all ready and set. The earthlings did not eat anything, deciding they would rather wait an hour or so and then eat in the Skylark. 
Hence, the slaves had a much better meal than they otherwise would have had. During that meal, Seton was very much surprised at hearing Dorothy carrying on a labored conversation with one of the women. I knew you were a language shark, Dottie, but I didn't think you could pick up this one in a day. Oh, I can't. Just a few words. I can understand very little of what they're trying to tell me. The woman spoke rapidly to the man with the belt, who immediately asked Seton's permission to speak to Dorothy. Running across to her, he bowed and poured out such a stream of words that she held up her hand to silence him. Slower, please, she said, and added a couple of words in his own language. There ensued then a very strange conversation between the slave couple and Dorothy, with much talking between the man and the woman, both talking at once to Dorothy, and much use of signs and sketches. Dorothy finally turned to Seton with a frown. I can't make out half of what he tried to tell me, and I'm guessing at part of that. He wants you to take him somewhere. Another room in the palace, I think. He wants to get something. I can't quite make out what it is, or whether it was his and they took it from him, or whether it's something of theirs that he wants to steal. He can't go alone. Martin was right. Any of them will be shot if they stir without us. And he says, and I'm pretty sure of this part, when you get there, don't let any guards come inside. What do you think, Mart? I'm inclined to string along with this bunch, at least part way. I don't like Nell Boone's honor guard set up a bit. Smells to me like an overripe fish. Crane concurred. Seaton and his slave started for the door. Dorothy went along. Better stay back, Dottie. We won't be gone long. I will not go back, she said for his ears alone. On this damn world, I'm not going to be away from you for one single minute more than I absolutely have to. All right, Ace, he replied in the same tone. You'd be amazed to find out how little there is in that idea for me to squawk about. Preceded by the man with the belt and followed by half a dozen other slaves, they went out into the hall. No opposition was made to their going, but half a company of armed guards fell in with them as an escort most of them looking at Seaton with a mixture of reverence and fear. The slave led the way to a room in a distant wing of the palace and opened the door. As Seaton stepped into it, he saw that it was an audience chamber or a courtroom and that it was empty. The guards approached the door and Seaton waved them back. All retreated across the hall except for the officer in charge, who refused to move. Seaton, the personification of offended dignity, stared haughtily at the offender, who returned the stare with interest and stepped forward, fully intending to be the first to enter the room. Seaton, with the flat of his right hand on the officer's chest, pushed him back roughly, forgetting that his strength, great upon earth, would be gigantic upon the smaller world. The officer spun across the corridor, knocking down three of his men in his flight. Picking himself up, he drew his sword and rushed, while his men fled in panic to the extreme end of the corridor. Seaton did not wait for him, but leapt to meet him. With his vastly superior agility, he dodged the falling broadsword and drove his right fist right into the fellow's throat, with all the strength of arm and shoulder and all the momentum of his body behind the blow. Bones broke audibly as the officer's head snapped back. The body went high in the air, turned two complete somersaults, and crashed against the far wall and dropped to the floor. At this outrage, some of the guards started to lift their peculiar guns. Dorothy screamed a warning, and Seaton drew and fired in one incredibly fast motion. 
the Mark I load obliterated the cluster's soldiers and demolished that end of the palace. In the meantime, the slave had taken several pieces of apparatus from a cabinet and placed them in his belt. Stopping only to observe for a few moments a small instrument which he clamped to the head of the dead man, he led the party back to the room they had left and set to work upon the device he had built during the sleeping period. He connected it in an extremely intricate network of wiring with pieces of apparatus he had just obtained. Whatever it is, he's doing a very nice job, Duquesne said admiringly. I've built complex stuff myself, but he's got me completely lost. It would take a week to find out where some of that stuff is going and what it's going to do when it gets there. Straightening up, the slave clamped several electrodes to his head and motioned to Seaton and the others, speaking to Dorothy as he did so. He wants us to put those things on our heads, she translated, but I can't make out what they're for. Shall we let him? Sure, he decided instantly. There's going to be hell to pay any minute now. I've got us in too deep to back out now. Besides, I've got a hunch. But, of course, I'm not trying to decide for any of you. In fact, Dot, it might be smart if you don't... I'm not smart, Dick. Wherever you go, I go, Dorothy said, and bent her auburn head to be fitted. I do not relish this idea, Crane said. In fact, I do not like it at all. But under the present circumstances, it seems like the thing to do. Margaret followed Crane's lead, but Duquesne said with a sneer, Go ahead. Let him make zombies of you. Nobody wires me up to a machine. Not one that I can't understand. The slave closed the switch, and instantly the four visitors acquired a completely detailed knowledge of the language and customs of both Martinal, the nation in which they were now, and Condal, the nation to which the slaves belonged, the only two civilized nations upon Osnome. While amazement at this method of instruction was still upon the earthman's face, the slave, or as they now knew him, Dunark, the crown prince of Condal, began to remove the helmets. He took off the girls and cranes. He was reaching for Seton's when there was a flash, a crackle, and a puff of smoke from the machine. Dunark and Seton both fell flat. Before Crane could reach them, however, they both recovered, and Dunark said, This is a mechanical educator. Something entirely new. We've been working on it several years, but it is still very crude. I didn't like to use it, but I had to, to warn you of what Nalboon is going to do, and to convince you that saving your own lives would save ours as well. But something went wrong, probably because of my hasty work in assembly. Instead of stopping at teaching you our languages, it shorted me and Dick together completely. What would such a short do? I'll answer that, Dunark. Seton had not recovered quite as fast as the Condalian, but now he was back to normal. All it did was print in the brain of each of us, down to the finest detail, everything that the other has ever learned. It was the completeness of the transfer that put us both out for a minute. I am sorry, Seton. Believe me. Why? Seton grinned. It's taken each of us all our lives to learn what we know, and now it's doubled. We're both way ahead, right? I certainly am, and I am glad that you take it that way. But time presses. Let me tell him, Seaton said. 
You aren't exactly sure which English to use yet, the one I talk or the one I write, and neither you nor we can think very fast yet in the other's language. Let me just boil it down. This is Crown Prince Dunark of Kandal. The other thirteen are relatives of his, princes and princesses. Nalboon's raiders got them while they were out hunting. He used a new kind of nerve gas so that they couldn't kill themselves, which is a good technique in these parts. Kandal and Mardinal have been at war for over 6,000 years, a war with no holds barred, no prisoners except to find out what they know, no niceties. Having found out what these Kandalians knew, Nalboon threw a party, a Roman circus really, he was going to feed them to some pet devil fish of his when those armored flying animals, Carlono, they call them, smelled them and came into the picture. You know what happened then. These people were aboard Nalboon's plane, the one we eased down to the ground. You think Nalboon would think he owed us something, but... Let me finish, Dunar cut in. You simply will not do yourself justice. Having saved his life, you should have been guests of the most honored kind. You would have been anywhere else in the universe. But no Mardonalian has or ever had either honor or conscience. At first, Nalboon was afraid of you, as were we all. We thought you were from the fifteenth sun, now at its closest possible distance, and after seeing your power we expected annihilation. However, after seeing the Skylark as a machine, learning that you are short of power, and finding you gentle, weak, he thinks that is, how wrong, instead of bloodthirsty, Nalboon decided to kill you and take your ship with its wonderful new power, for while we Osnobians are ignorant of chemistry, we know machines and we know electricity. No Osnomian has ever had an inkling that such a thing as atomic energy exists. Nonetheless, after his study of your engines, Nalboon knows how to liberate it and how to control it. With the Skylark he could obliterate Kondal, and to do that he would do anything. Also, he or any other Osnomian scientist, including myself, would go to any length, would challenge first cause itself to secure even one of those small containers of the chemical you call salt. It is the scarcest, most precious substance in our world. You actually had more of it at the table than the total previously known to exist upon all of Osnome. Its immense value is due not to its rarity, but to the fact that it is the only known catalyst for our hardest metals. You now know why Nalboon intends to kill you, and nothing you can do or not do will alter that intent. His plan is this, during the next sleeping period. I simply can't use your word night, since there is no such thing here. He will cut into the Skylark, take all the salt you have. The interrupted circus will be resumed, with you Tellurians as the principal guests. We Kandalians will be given to the Carlono, then you five will be killed, and your bodies smelted to recover the salt that is in them. This is the warning I had to give you. Its urgency explains why I used my crude educator. In self-defense, I must add, the lives of you five Tellurians are not of paramount importance. The lives of us fourteen Kandalians much less so. We are all expendable. The Skylark, however, is not. If Nelboon gets her, 
every living Kondalian will die within a year. That fact and that fact alone explains why you saw me, the Kofedix of Kandal, prostrate myself before Nalboon of Mardanal, and heard me order my kinsmen to do the same. How do you, a prince of another nation, know all these things? Crane asked. Some are common knowledge. I heard much while aboard Nalboon's plane. I read Nalboon's plan from the brain of the officer Dick killed. He was a... a colonel of the guard, and high in Nalboon's favor. He was to have been in charge of cutting into the Skylark, and of killing and smelting you five. Well, that clears things up, Seaton said. Thanks, Dunark. The big question now is, what do we do about this? I suggest that you take us into the Skylark and get away from here as soon as you can. I can pilot you to Kondalek, our capital city. There, I can assure you, you will be welcomed as you deserve. My father will treat you as a visiting Carfadic should be treated. As far as I am concerned, if you can succeed in getting us back to Kondal or in getting the Skylark there without any of us, nothing I can ever do will lighten the burden of my indebtedness. But I promise you all the copper you want and anything else you may desire that is within the power of all Kondal to give. Seaton scowled in thought. Our best chance is with you, he said finally. But if we give you atomic power, which we would be doing if we take you back home to Kondal, then you're going to obliterate Mardanal, if you can, right? Of course. So ethically, perhaps we should leave you all here and try to blast our own way to the Skylark, and then go about our own business. That is your right. But I can't do that. And if I did, Dottie would skin me alive and rub salt in every day from now on. And Nalboon and his crowd are the scum of the universe. Maybe I'm prejudiced by having your whole mind in mine, but I think I would have come to the same decision if I had Nalboon's whole mind in there as well. When will we make the break? The hour after the second meal? The strolling hour, yes. You're using my knowledge, I see, just as I'm using yours. Mart, Duquesne, we'll make a break just after the next meal, when everybody is strolling around talking to everybody else. That's when the guards are most lax, and our best chance, since we haven't got armor and no good way of getting any. But how about your killing his guards and blowing the end out of his palace? Duquesne asked. He isn't the type to take much of that sitting down. Won't that make him hurry things along? We don't quite know, either Dunark or me. It depends pretty much on which emotion is governing, anger or fear. But we'll know pretty quick. He'll be paying us a call of state pretty soon now, and we'll see what he acts like and how he talks. However, he's quite a diplomat and may conceal his real feelings entirely. But remember, he thinks gentleness is fear, so don't be surprised if I open up on him. If he gets the least bit tough, I'll cut him down to size right there. Well, Crane said, if we have some time to wait, we may as well wait in comfort instead of standing up in the middle of the room. I, for one, would like to ask a few questions. The Tellurians seated themselves upon divans, and Dunark began to dismantle the machine he had built. The Kondalians remained standing behind their masters until Seton protested. Please, sit down, everybody. 
There's no need of keeping up this farce of your being slaves as long as we're alone. Perhaps not, but at the first sign of a visitor, we must all be in our places. Now that I have a little time, and we are able to understand each other, I will introduce you to my party. Fellow Kandalians, greet Carfadix Seton and Carfadix Crane of a strange and extremely distant planet called Earth. He and his group saluted formally. Greet also the noble ladies, Miss Vainman and Miss Spencer, soon to become Carfadir Seton and Carfadir Crane, respectively. They saluted again. Guests from Earth, allow me to present Kofidir Sitar, the only one of my wives who was unfortunate enough to be with me on our ill-fated hunting expedition. One of the women stepped forward and bowed deeply to the four, who returned the compliment in kind. Ignoring Duquesne, the captive, he went on to introduce the other Kandalians as his brothers, sisters, half-brothers, half-sisters, and cousins, all members of the ruling house of Kandal. Now, after I have had a word with you in private, Dr. Seaton, I will be glad to give the others any information I can. I want a word with you too, Junior. I didn't want to break up your ceremony by arguing about it out there, but I am not, never was, and never will be a Carfadix, which word, as you know, translates quite closely into emperor. I'm merely a plain citizen. I know that. That is, I know it in a way from your own knowledge, but I find it impossible to understand it or to relate it to anything in my own experience. Nor can I understand your government. I fail entirely to see how it could function for even one of your years without breaking down. On Osnome, Dick, men of your attainments and Martins are Carfedo. You will be, whether you want to or not, Ph.D., Doctor of Philosophy, Carfedix of Knowledge. Pipe down, Dunnart. Forget it. What was it you wanted to talk to me about, away from the mob? Dorothy and Margaret, you already have it in your mind somewhere from mine, but you might find it as impossible to understand as I do much of yours. Your women are so different from ours, so startlingly beautiful, that Nalboon will not kill either of them for a time. So if worse comes to worse, be sure to kill them while you still can. I see. Okay. I find it now. Seaton's voice was cold, his eyes hard. Thanks. I'll remember that. And charge it to Nell Boone's personal account, too. Rejoining the others, they found Dorothy and Sitar deep in conversation. So a man has half a dozen wives or so? Dorothy was asking in surprise. How can you get along? I'd fight like a wildcat if Dick got any funny ideas like that. Why, splendidly, of course. I would not think of ever marrying a man if he was such a... a... louse that only one woman would have him. I got a cheerful thought for you and Peg, Redtop. Dunark here thinks you two are beautiful. Startlingly beautiful, in fact, was his exact description. What, in this light? Green, black, yellow, mud color? We're hideous. If that's your idea of a joke, Dick. Oh, no, Dorothy, Sitar interposed. You two are beautiful, really lovely. 
You have such a rich, smoothly blending color flow. It's a shame to hide so much of it with robes. Yes, why do you? Dunark asked, as both girls blushed hotly. He paused, obviously searching in Dick's mind for an answer, which he could not find on his own. Ah, yes, I see the sense of covering as a protection, or for certain ceremonials in which covering is ritual, but when not needed, in fact, when you are too warm as you are now. He broke off in embarrassment and went on. Please help me, Dick. I seem to be getting my foot in it deeper and deeper. What have I done to offend? Nothing. It isn't you at all. It's just our race. We've worn clothing for centuries, and we just can't... Um, Mart, how do you explain modesty to a race like this? He swept his arm to cover the group of perfectly poised, completely unselfconscious naked men and women. I could explain it after a fact, but I doubt very much if even you, Dunark, with your heredity could understand it. Sometime, when we have a few hours to spare, I will try to, if you like. But in the meantime, what are these colors, and what do they mean? They are identifications. When a child is nearly grown, it is cast about his neck. It bears his name, number, and the device of his house. Being made of Aranak, it cannot be altered without killing the person. Any osnomium not wearing a collar is unthinkable, but if it should ever happen, he would be immediately killed. Is that belt of yours something similar? No, merely a pouch, but even Nalboon thought it was opaque Aranak, so he did not try to open it. Is that transparent armor made of the same thing? Yes, except that nothing is added to the matrix to make it colored or opaque. It is in the preparation of this metal that salt is indispensable. It acts only as a catalyst being recovered afterwards. But neither nation has ever had enough salt to make all the armor they want. Aren't those monsters, the Carlono, I think you called them, covered with the same thing? And what are they, anyway? Dorothy asked. Yes, it is thought that the beasts grow it, just as fishes grow scales. But no one knows how they do it, or even how they can possibly do it. Very little is known about them, however, except that they are the worst scourge of Osdome. Various scientists have described the Carlon as a bird, a beast, a fish, and a vegetable. Sexual, asexual, hermaphroditic. Its habitat is... The gong sounded, and the Kandalians leapt to their positions. The Kofidex went to the door. Now Boone brushed him aside and entered, escorted by a squad of heavily armed, fully armored soldiers. A scowl of anger was on his face. He was plainly in an ugly mood. Stop, Nalboon of Mardanal, Seton thundered in the Mardanalian tongue and at the top of his powerful voice. Dare you invade privacy without invitation? The escort shrank back, but the emperor stood his ground, although he was plainly taken by surprise. With a heroic effort, he smoothed his face into lines of cordiality. I wish to inquire why my soldiers are slain, and my honored guest has destroyed a wing of my palace. You may. I permit it to point out your errors. Your guards, at your order, no doubt, sought to invade my privacy. Being forbearing, I warned them once, 
but one of them was foolhardy enough to challenge me and was, of course, destroyed. Then the others attempted to raise their childish weapons against me, and I, of course, destroyed them. The wall merely chanced to be inside the field of action of the force I chanced to be employing at the time. Honored guest, bah! Know, Nalboon, that when you seek to treat as captive a visiting domak of my race, you lose not only your own life, but the lives of all your nation as well. Do you perceive your errors? Anger and fear sought for supremacy on Nelboon's face, but a third emotion, wonder, won out. He, Nelboon, was armed. He had with him a score of armed and armored men. This stranger had nothing. The slaves were less than nothing. Yet he stood there arrogantly confident, master of the planet, the solar system, and the universe by his bearing. And how, how had he completely obliterated fifty armed and armored men and a thousand tons of stone and ultra-hard metal? Now Boone temporized. May I ask you how you so recently ignorant know our language? You may not, but you may go.